Welcome to another edition in this series of talks organized on behalf of SPIDERS, the sole platform for initiating discourses on equitable and resilient society. The talks complement a series of original papers published on the SPIDERS platform dedicated to outlining the building blocks of post-capitalist political economies and societies not oriented around growth and profit, but rather good lives and a flourishing web of life in times of profound planetary change. Hosting these talks are founder of the Peer-to-Peer -Peer Foundation, Michel Bounds, and myself, Rokrantz. And today, to help us outline some of these building blocks, we're joined by distinguished guests from the Democracy Collaborative, Senior Fellow and Executive Vice President, Marjorie Kelly, as well as Research Director and Co-Director of the Theory, Policy and Research Division, Thomas Hanna. Well, happy to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Awesome. So uh, now Thomas and Marjorie are also authors of the Spiders paper, Community Wealth Building, The Path Toward a Democratic and Reparative Political Economic System. But before we explore this paper a little bit more in depth, uh, let's take a minute for each to say a little bit about your backgrounds, meaning your personal journeys and inspirations for the work that you're doing uh, and advocating for today. Sure, I'd be happy to start, Rock. Um, I, I come at this work originally as a, a business journalist. I covered <clears throat> socially responsible business and investing for many years as the founder of Business Ethics Magazine. And I was at that time, um, this is back in the 90s, hopeful that individual good business people and good investors would uh, would lead us forward to a better, a better economy. And I, I became discouraged and saw really it's, it's systemic. The, the problems you, you can't solve it just with individuals. And um, sold business ethics, moved to Telus Institute, and worked on um, sort of the design for the next corporation, and, and joined the Democracy Collaborative about eight years ago, which is working on the the whole system. What what is a whole new kind of economy? So it's and we're an R&D lab for a democratic economy, you know, demonstrating the principles of a different kind of economy. And um, the moment seems to be here that the conversation is catching on. So I'm glad to be here today. Yeah, so thanks, Marjorie. Um, well, in terms of my personal background, I was born in the United Kingdom and I currently live in the United States. So I'm first-generation immigrant, having been moved here um, as a child. And I'm also a second-generation refugee in that my father's side of the family was forced to leave their homes in northern Cyprus in the 70s following the Turkish invasion. And I mention this primarily because I think that this personal history that I have um, and these experiences led me to becoming an activist at a very early age. Um, so I got my start in political activism in, in high school, organizing a student's union in my school. And then I was involved in the anti-globalization movement around the turn of the 21st century. Um, I was involved in the Palestinian solidarity movement, the anti-Iraq war movement, uh, living wage and other campaigns on campus, and then the Occupy movement um, after the, the crisis in 2008, 2009. So my experience is very much coming from, from that activist perspective that has consumed most of my life. Um, in terms of my education, I have an undergrad and a grad degree in history. 
And in particular, I studied the period of history uh, in the United States from roughly 1958 to 1972, and specifically school desegregation, the civil rights movement, and the new left uh, in Virginia in particular, which is where I live. So I'd say that I've always been very interested in alternatives to the dominant political economic system, both from an international and a domestic perspective. I, um, I was looking for a job during the, the financial crisis of 2008, 2009 after university, not a great time to be, to be looking for employment. And I came across an opening for Gar Alperwitz's research assistant. Gar Alperwitz uh, is the historian and economist who is the co-founder of the Democracy Collaborative, um, who you'll probably hear a lot about in this talk, um, obviously. But uh, I became Gar's research assistant, was very lucky to get that job um, in 2010 when I joined the Democracy Collaborative. And I've been here now 10 years um, and eventually working my way up and became the research director about four or five years ago. And I primarily focus on alternative models of ownership. That's the thing, that's the part that I think is, is most critical. So I know a lot and I write a lot about uh, things like cooperatives, publicly owned enterprise, social enterprise and, and the like. Awesome. Thank you so much both for those brief introductions. Uh, so your paper kind of delves uh, deep into community wealth building, like the history of the concept, uh, institutions or ecologies of institutions, um, as well as a kind of explicit theory of change that you relate to the model. Uh, yeah, we can say that the, the model itself is very much a buzzword these days, especially suppose in the, the US and UK. Um, it's, uh, yeah all the mouths of, of public officials trying to make uh, change uh, some i guess uh, using it as a kind of yeah buzzword while while others uh, really looking deep into the potentialities of the model uh, it's it's um, like contextual embeddedness uh, history and so on and we're very excited to have you both here uh, as representatives of this model to to yeah uh, say a little bit more in depth about it um, so with that said, uh, the floor is yours. Yeah, well, I'd like to start uh, with the with the current moment and, and the crisis that we're in. I mean, we have COVID-19 around the world. And of course, it's revealed uh, vast inequalities. And we've had climate crises with burning in Australia and so on. And so we're at this moment. We're starting to say, what comes next? And at the Democracy Collaborative, we posit a notion that the road ahead forks. There really are two paths. And people talk about a V-shaped recovery. You know, we wanna get back to the status quo, get back to business as usual, but that's, that's a fantasy and it's a dangerous and, and in fact, impossible one. It's the failures of that system that have led us to this moment of breakdown in, in the first place. So that's another path. Uh, there's another path possible. And this is what we write about in our paper. And it's one that leads to a political economic system that could enable all of us to live well and to do so within planetary boundaries. So, and what we talk about in the paper is that in the embryo, this system already exists. It's being proven in, in innovative models of what's often called the social economy, the solidarity economy, or, or what we call the democratic economy. <clears throat> now, we see these models as the seedbed of the future. This is really uh, what's growing is the next system that our world urgently requires. 
I have to add, of course, that there's no guarantee that this positive future is what is what lies ahead. And there certainly are uh, uh, negative futures that are probably far more likely. But there's one future that we can pretty much almost certainly rule out, and that is a return to the status quo. We're not going back to the economy of the past. That's that's the vanishing utopia. So in the long run, if we, if we step back, we can see that capitalism seems to be entering the beginning of the end of a very long crisis. And this is, this is the view of uh, Italian economist uh, Giovanni Arrighi. He, he was writing in 1994. This is after the fall of the Soviet Union, when capitalism was triumphant. Um, and he, he observed at that time that the, these long periods of crisis and discontinuous change are far more typical of capitalism than this, than this uh, generalized ex expanse, which is sort of the picture in our mind of what capitalism is. It's just this endless growth ever upward. But, but in fact, that's not what it is. It's this it's discontinuous change and crisis is far more typical. Now, Arrighi said the roots of this reach back to the 1970s. And, and, and here we are, we're 25 years after he was writing, and we seem to be entering the concluding phase of this long crisis. And we can see this, the systemic shocks we're seeing are getting more severe. We're seeing compounding challenges like inequality. And, and there's a decline, at least the beginning of decline of public legitimacy. Um, so the, the disturbing point that Arrighi made is he said in the past, when we have had this, this discontinuous change, it's ended by capitalism reconstituting itself on new and enlarged foundations. So it breaks down and then we just build it back um, the way it was, and in fact, bigger and enlarged. <clears throat> but that's not probably not possible this time. Capitalism already reaches every corner of the globe. I mean, it's financialization. The financial economy is so much larger than the real economy, bigger than we can even envision. And of course, there's planetary boundaries that we're confronting. So, so Carl Polanyi uh, predicted this moment. He, he said, you know, he was writing much earlier in the 20th century, and he, he observed that throughout the prior history of the world, economic activity had always just been one part of a social order and that there was religion, there was government, there, was, there were families, there was the natural world. And it was the kings of capital who turned that order on its head and they took labor and land and said, these are market commodities. Uh, as Polanyi wrote, to be bought and sold, used and destroyed as if they're simply merchandise. But, but these were what Polanyi called fictitious commodities because we're talking about human beings and the earth. Um, and when you try to run society as an adjunct to the market, that is what he called a stark utopia. And, and this kind of institution cannot exist for any length of time, Polanyi said, without annihilating the human and natural substance of society. So as he said, this movement to marketize, to commoditize everything leads to what he called the double movement. There's a movement for social protection, regulation, social safety nets, taxation, unions. But that frame is breaking down. It's, it's, a, it's this frame from, from the 1930s and it's, just, it's a picket fence in front of 
uh, in front of a speeding locomotive. So we need to move to the next system. It's not enough to just wrap protections around the system as it is. We need to move to a system built on a fundamentally different kind of foundation. We need to re-embed economy in community. We need to bring it back to earth. <clears throat> so the common good is in the DNA of the economy, not just, not just wrapped around it. Now, my colleague, Ted Howard and I in 2019 published the making of a democratic economy. And in there, we said, you can envision this next system as a democratic economy operating within planetary boundaries. And you can define it simply as, it's, it's an economy where the basic design is about meeting the essential needs of all of us, balancing human consumption with the regenerative capacity of the earth, responding to the voices and concerns of regular people, not just the elite, and, and sharing prosperity uh, across the board without regard to race or gender, or national origin or wealth. So the democratic economy, as, as I said, a democracy collaborative, we're, we're an R&D lab for the democratic economy. And where this begins is with building community wealth. We're bringing the economy back to earth. We're embedding it again in community, using institutions, democratic uh, economic institutions, that have the common good at their core in their DNA, not, not profit maximization. That's, that's building community wealth. And um, in, in this long crisis that we're experiencing that may be coming to its end, um, while that's been growing, the models and institutions of community wealth building have also been growing and proving themselves. And uh, I, I'd like to hand it to Thomas to, to talk more about that. Thanks, Marjorie. Um, yeah, so, so as Marjorie has detailed, our, our current political economic system is experiencing a long-term crisis, and, and one that I think that we feel is only likely to intensify in the coming period as we can confront mounting economic, social, and ecological challenges. So as Marjorie said, we're at the turning point. We're at the proverbial uh, fork in the road, and many of the paths ahead are pretty dark and dangerous. So we really need to begin to urgently ask ourselves not only what comes next, but like how do we actually get there? And so for us, community wealth building is one of those paths ahead. It's the one that could lead to the more equitable, democratic, sustainable political economic system beyond corporate capitalism that a lot of us want to see. And our working definition of community wealth building is that it's a strategy and a process that works to produce broadly shared economic prosperity, racial equity, and ecological sustainability through the reconfiguration of local institutions and economic strategies on the basis of greater democratic ownership, participation, and control. So this means that community wealth building primarily involves developing and scaling community-owned and community-controlled institutions that have service to the public good at their core rather than profit maximization, as Marjorie said. So this includes institutions such as cooperatives, publicly owned enterprises and banks, community land trusts and social housing, community-based financial institutions, and community-based nonprofit corporations, among many others. It also includes supportive strategies such as linking these institutions to the procurement power of large public and nonprofit anchor institutions. These are things like hospitals, universities, and governments, for instance. It includes redirecting public subsidies and incentives and tax breaks away from the large capitalist corporations, the Amazons of the world that extract wealth from communities and into these alternative approaches and institutions. And it involves experimenting with hybrid forms, linked models, networks, and other approaches to increase scope and scale. So it's looking forward, it's flexible, it's trying to think of new ways to deal with, with uh, new problems. 
So how do these components interact with each other? Many of the institutions and approaches I just mentioned are pretty commonplace in communities around the world and throughout history. However, they have thus far, with a few exceptions here and there, not reached the scale and level of coordination necessary to represent a viable alternative to our corporate capitalist system. What makes community wealth building relatively unique is that it recognizes the need to go beyond isolated projects, small institutions, the communities here and there, and move towards integrating multiple models and approaches into interlinked systemic designs. So in other words, it's a full system approach that links community economic development on the one hand, with economic, social, and cultural interventions at a variety of scales to move towards a political economic system beyond corporate capitalism. So the next logical question everyone should ask is, well, how can this happen? How can community wealth building lead to a democratic and reparative economy beyond capitalism? Community wealth building has a theory of change that is different from both reform and revolution. And it's inspired by the theories of Gar Alperwitz, who I mentioned is the co-founder of our organization, Eric Olin Wright, Andre Gortzen, and others. On the one hand, it rejects the notion that systemic change can occur simply by reforming or restructuring existing social democratic institutions and approaches. We all know these have been under attack and in decline around the world since the 1970s. And here we're talking specifically about things like trade unions as a countervailing power to capital and state-led tax and redistribution programs. On the other hand, though, it agrees, while it agrees that capitalism is inherently unstable and prone to crisis, it does not view that a violent revolutionary rupture or separatism uh, is feasible or advisable given the low probability of success, especially in places like the United States, and the high prospect of death, destruction, and division that would occur, and that would be at, hot, would be at odds with the purpose of creating a system that is more equitable, democratic, ecologically sustainable, and peaceful. So rather than reform a revolution, community wealth building posits that there's another option for how to achieve systemic change. Namely, that it's possible to develop, scale, and network uh, a variety of new institutions and approaches that change and democratize patterns of ownership and control in the economy and our society. As these institutions grow and develop, they can be consciously linked to and begin to support a new political, social, and cultural movement that, in turn, we hope, can help further scale and develop and defend these new institutions and approaches, as well as develop a counter-hegemony around them and through them. In this way, over time, not only can these new, more democratic and equitable institutions and approaches eventually displace the existing extractive and racist ones that underpin the current corporate capitalist system, but they can also form the basis of a new system and a new politics that's grounded in radically different social, economic, and ecological values and principles. So for us, this process requires both bottom-up and top-down strategies, including for contesting for state resources and support. And traditionally, many people involved in community-based new economic models and approaches, especially here in the US, have been pretty wary of the state and have focused attention on developing bottom-up institutions and approaches that are outside of the state or as independent from the state as possible. But I think this kind of reflexive anti-statist orientation and strategy is somewhat self-limiting right now. I think there definitely can be and should be a legitimate debate about what the future democratic economy and society looks like and how it should be organized. But absent some sort of revolutionary or separatist rupture, I think one of the only plausible routes to systemic change involves scaling up these alternative economic institutions, models, and approaches, and building and mobilizing a popular and social movement around them by at least in part delivering material benefits to people and communities. And this is almost inevitably going to require recognizing that the state is not a monolithic entity and it's contestable, and we need to contest for state resources uh, and state support at various scales. 
And this view is based on an analysis of some of the more some of the few modern instances and experiments with larger scale democratized economic models and systems, things like Mondragon in the Basque region of Spain, Yugoslavia, Kerala, you know, Algeria, you know, a lot of these places where you did get to a, a scale that was larger than the scale that we have, but all of those integrated state support and state, you know, resources in various ways. It also involves an analysis of the history of how community wealth building institutions have developed here in the United States as well as emerging experimentation in cities across the world aimed at linking state intervention at various scales to the development of new economic institutions. Things like how the city of New York is allocating funds from its municipal budget to the development of uh, worker-owned cooperatives and uh, community land trusts and, and so on and so forth. So that all being said, there are undoubtedly dangers involved with engaging the state and contesting for state resources and support, including things like co-optation, codependence, over-reliance, and a weakening of goals, objectives, and values. So therefore for us, a second critically important goal of community wealth building is to introduce, embed, and preserve a set of community benefiting values and principles, including most critically, the ultimate goal of comprehensive political economic transformation. And lastly, I'll just spend a little bit of time on what constitutes a significant portion of our paper, which was the history of community wealth building. And while community wealth building is a relatively new term, it traces its conceptual roots to the late 1960s and early 1970s when, as Marjorie said, capitalism began to enter this crisis phase in the US and other parts of the world. Specifically, several converging currents during this period led to the development of prototypical community wealth building institutions and approaches. Things like community development financial institutions, community development corporations, community land trusts, all of which who have their have their roots in the civil rights movement in the United States, as well as experimentation in anti-colonial struggles around the world. In particular, in the United States, it's how elements of the civil rights movement began to turn towards structural economic issues in the late 1960s and early 1970s. It also includes things like worker and community, uh, worker and cooperative ownership, which began to emerge both in the social struggles of the 1960s, but also as deindustrialization and deunionization began to affect the US economy uh, in the 1970s. So by the mid 1970s, we can see prototypical community wealth building institutions and models and concepts emerging and developing in all the critical areas of the economy. And a few bold and innovative theorists were starting to suggest ways in which these models could be scaled up and unified into cohesive alternative political economic frameworks. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I won't go into too much detail here, but in the paper, we describe one of the first large scale proto community wealth building efforts in the late 1970s, which was an effort to reopen a large steel mill in Youngstown, Ohio under a community uh, worker ownership model. Excuse me for one second. <clears throat> However, these efforts and ideas were decades ahead of their time in many ways. And in retrospect, they represent, I think, the path not taken in the 1970s. And as I think we all know, the path that was taken was almost the polar opposite of community wealth building, that of neoliberalism, which is a variant of uh, capitalism defined by marketization, privatization, liberalization, financialization, and, and globalization. Fortunately, however, as Marjorie was mentioning, beneath this permafrost of neoliberalism, many of these community wealth building institutions and approaches were quietly developing both in scale and sophistication, both in the United States and, and other parts of the world. And as neoliberalism has increasingly run into difficulty in recent years, they've reemerged <clears throat> quite powerfully and have been joined by new institutions and new concepts. 
In the mid 2000s, our organization, the Democracy Collaborative coined the term community wealth building to describe the process of connecting and scaling these alternative models, institutions and approaches into interlinked systemic designs that, as I said, point in the direction of a political economic system beyond corporate capitalism. One of the first major community wealth building efforts began in the late 2000s in Cleveland, Ohio. As part of a wider effort, our organization was invited in to develop a community controlled worker cooperative network based in extremely low income and disinvested neighborhoods in Cleveland. The network was loosely modeled on the Mondragon cooperatives in the Basque region of Spain and the collective enterprises are all linked together by a community controlled holding company, combining the concepts of job creation, uh, wealth creation, worker ownership and community control. And the successes and the challenges of the Evergreen Cooperative sparked considerable national and international um, interest in community wealth building. And since 2010, dozens of communities in the United States and around the world have embraced the community wealth building concept and framework and have started locally led and designed community wealth building projects. And one of the most comprehensive of these was developed in the UK in Preston, which is a deindustrialized city in the north of England, very similar to Cleveland, um, and partly inspired by the Evergreen Cooperatives. The leaders on the Preston City Council launched an ambitious community wealth building initiative after a traditional, uh, you know, corporate incentive economic revitalization strategy collapsed during the financial crisis. And, and they've had great success so far. Uh, you know, they've redirected hundreds of millions of pounds back to the local economy. They've created a cooperative development network. They're setting up a community bank. They have a publicly owned cinema. Uh, they're looking at a publicly owned energy company and they won awards for being one of the most improved places uh, in England. So I'll just, I know I've been going on, so I'll just close with a direct quote from the paper. And, and we wrote that in some community wealth building can be seen as both a new idea and one with a long intellectual, intellectual and activist pedigree. It is a concept that is constantly evolving and maturing to face emerging challenges and opportunities, but also one that is underpinned by a clear, historically informed analysis of capitalism's long crisis and the need to develop a new political economic system. And it's an approach to community economic development and systemic change that is flexible and adaptable, yet guided by a particular set of institutions and approaches that developed through decades of resistance to racism, inequality, and exploitation that is inherent to corporate capitalism. It is the path not taken in the past, which now holds promise as the path for the future. Thank you, Thomas. Um, I. I might have a few questions that uh, you know could be addressed either to you or to uh, Marjorie. Um, so it's more like clarification at this point. So you talk a lot about scaling and networks, um, but when I hear community, uh, you know, I think local, and the, the examples you gave, like Preston and, and Cleveland, are kind of you know city-based uh, communities. And I heard that you recognize that the state does have, uh, you know, an, an influence on, on what is possible and what kind of support uh, you can give. So that kind of introduces the national scale. But what about the planetary scale? Because, you know, a lot of things today, um, if you look at COVID, um, you know, you could do well in the US, but the people in the global south don't have access to the vaccines, right? So there's, or, or fisheries that are being overfished by industrial uh, ships from other countries or you know um the amazon being on fire and and it produces um oxygen for everyone so how, how does the planetary scale fit in your you know kind of your set of ideas that's one question uh then my second question is 
I, you know, I hear a very positive account of the growth of community, well-building institutions. Uh, but what are they? I mean, can you give some examples of, of, of this kind of growth of, of institutions that are, you know, growing, getting more power and maybe accumulating more resources? Well, yeah, thanks for those, Michelle. Those are great questions. I'll, I'll tackle the first one and leave the second one to Thomas. The, um, the ecological crisis is obviously the largest uh, crisis that we face and the largest frame in which we, we all have to live for the future. And so we emphasize that a democratic economy, that's the human aspect, right? How do you make decisions? Democracy is the one form of human institution that, that seems to, to hold out hope of making decisions without having to go to war constantly. So we, human beings need democracy and we need democracy in the economy. Now, nature doesn't have a voice, right? And so where, where does nature fit in that? Well, nature is the larger frame. We have to live within planetary boundaries. So there's gonna be all kinds of institutions that are needed there. Democracy is, is uh, in an economy is gonna have multiple kinds of institutions at various scales, as Thomas said. And so we're gonna need international um, institutions to deal with climate change. It's got to be, it's got to be dealt with at the planetary level. And we, and we see in embryo, some of those, those forming with the intergovernmental, um, panel on, on climate change. So that's, that's starting to form, um, community wealth building at the local level. And of course there's going to be scales all level, national state, um, uh, city. And there's many, many people working on that work. And we think that dovetails, nicely with uh, the work of the democratic economy and community wealth building. We would also emphasize that some of our work at the Democracy Collaborative is, is explicitly directed at, at ecological issues and how democratically owned and controlled institutions are critical in, in the ecological transition. Uh, one example is um, um, fossil fuel companies. A lot of the reason, a, a major reason we have not as a, as a US economy, uh, US society, been able to deal with climate change is because of fossil fuel companies like ExxonMobil who have been deliberately spreading misinformation. And so we have developed uh, and are, are uh, um, starting to advance a policy to buy out fossil fuel companies and wind them down. Um, you know, if we could actually own these companies and just wind them down, let's just get them off the stage. And in fact, their their price has fallen dramatically. And we have um, <clears throat> we have um, uh, some various foundations that are very interested in this kind of out of the box thinking. Let's let's just why do we allow these kind of corporations to exist? I published a paper that said, you know, the end of the corporation was the name of the paper. We've got to end the profit maximizing corporation as a model. And Exxon model is a great place. Uh, Exxon Mobil is a great place to start. Can I maybe ask you to, to say a little bit more about this? Because the, the way I discovered your work was with your first book, or maybe that wasn't your first book, but it's Divine Right of Capital. Sure. Which I, you know, I think was a really original book about uh, things that most people don't know about a corporation. Yeah. For example, they, you know, they were licensed to do some some societal function originally, right? Um, so, can you say a bit like linking your your earlier work with with what your precise proposal is yeah. to to transform corporations? Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, I um, 
Divine Right of Capital came out um, about 20 years ago. It's still being used in MBA classes today uh, because it articulates uh, something that um, that needs to be articulated is that these this this the multinational corporation which these are globe spanning entities they're pre-democratic in their in their form they're not designed to be changed they operate by by privilege for the wealthy that's their that's their fundamental aim they want to maximize returns to shareholders and we know that uh, shareholders are predominantly the wealthy <clears throat> 84% of, of stock market wealth is owned by 10% and and a great deal of wealth is owned by, owned by the 1%. Um, and so this notion of you know, maximum benefit to the few is built into the corporation. Only shareholders have a vote. Uh, and the more wealth you have, the more votes you have. I mean, this is, this is aristocratic privilege. I, I call it a living fossil. It's a, it's a fossil of the, uh, the monarchical and aristocratic age, which used to dominate the globe before, before the advent of democracy. And it's still there. It's still living among us, and it's embedded in in the corporation, most um, uh, dangerously. And and we and it goes by these very benign terms of you know um, fiduciary duty and so on. It it, it disguises itself as this technocratic uh, mandate. In, in fact, it's it's privilege for for the wealthy few built into the rules of, of the game, and it's a. It's a it's a machine that has no handles for change. That's characteristic of of the world pre democracy. Um, and so yeah, so I came at this by looking at the corporation, which of course is the dominant institution in our economy, corporation and capital markets, which are hand in glove, right? And um, and then as I came to the democracy collaborative um, and began working with my colleagues here, I you know it. It brought me into this larger world. Well, if the corporation is the problem, redesigning the corporation is critical, but it's not the only solution. You have to start from somewhere else. You have to start from community. You have to, as Polandi said, you got to start with people. You got to start with planet. And you have to build all the institutions of, of the economy that we need. And, and um, in my second book, I, I called this a regenerative. Or, or generative economy. You need an economy that functions like nature functions. It, it generates, um, nature generates oxygen and, and clean water and, and uh, keeps us all alive. We need an economy that's like that. It needs to be generative in its basic function, not extractive, you know, ex turning everything into a commodity and extracting the most for yourself and forget the mess you've left behind. I mean, that's, it's crazy. Um, and so helping us, my work has always been about trying to language and sort of penetrate the absurdity of this, which, which we live with without actually seeing it. Um, and, and of course, you know, democracy is, is a um, multifaceted institution. You have separation of powers, you have term limits, you have juries, you know, you, there's all kinds of things going on inside democratic institutions. Well, that's going to be the same of an economy. There's all kinds of institutions and practices that need to become the new, the new norm. Thank you. So, Thomas, can you um, then uh, maybe talk about the institutions and give so, a bit more details? Yeah, happy to. Um, and before I, I say that, I'll just on the first question, you know, for, for me, I think that a lot of the problems that we face, you know, a, a lot of our compounding and intersecting uh, problems 
cannot be solved on the nation state level. Um, I think we've, that's been proven. And what's needed is a movement in multiple directions. We need a decentralized movement you know, back towards community and back towards regions, but we also need to scale up in, in certain ways to the international level. And generally with community wealth building and a lot of our work, we operate on the principle of subsidiarity. It's, you know, at the lowest scale necessary to deal with the problem at hand. And some problems are genuinely international in scope and need to be addressed at the international level. And so it's about how to connect up community wealth building, how to connect up place-based economics with those interventions at an international scale to deal with the, the problems that we face. So onto the, onto the second question um, with regards to the institutions, what we've seen at the Democracy Collaborative just in the 20 years that we've been in existence is a large scale increase in the United States of some of these institutions. So for instance, community land trusts, when we were writing in 2005 or so, we did a survey of community land trusts. There was a hundred and something in the United States. There are now you know, 270 or so in the United States. That means a doubling in 15 years of, of this institution called the Community Land Trust. Uh, you know, things like credit unions, for instance, a very traditional uh, model of finance. Um, every year, you know, the amount of assets under control of credit unions grows and grows. It's grown every year in the past 15 years since we've been studying it. The number of CDFIs, Community Development Financial Institutions, which is a new form, didn't exist. Um, you know, before the 1970s, uh, you know, has you know, went from, you know, one or zero in the 1970s to a few hundred in the 1990s to, you know, uh, more than a thousand now, you know, many communities in almost every state have a community development financial institution. Worker ownership as well. I mean, so worker co-ops in particular have had a lot of interest, especially since the financial crisis in the United States. Um, you know, in the Occupy movement, you know, there's been massive social interest in worker cooperatives. You know, worker cooperatives are still a very tiny aspect of the U.S. economy. Um, you know, when, you know, right around Occupy 2000, there was probably, you know, I think they were said there was 300 or so worker co-ops with 5,000 members, you know, very tiny. They're still small. I'm not going to say that they're massively larger now, but in just 10 years, you know, they've almost doubled in the number and, you know, they've gone from 5,000 to 8,000 workers, you know, so on and so forth. You know, employee stock option, uh, stock ownership plans, ESOPs, um, again, new form, didn't exist prior to the 1970s. Uh, now there's 10 and a half million workers who own a share of their business through an ESOP. I mean, that's a massive growth in, in 30 years. Uh, public banking is one that, that gets me a lot in the United States. I mean, uh, in the United States, we have a publicly owned bank, the Bank of North Dakota, very successful, 100 years old, but it's been the only public bank that we've had. Since the financial crisis, 2008, 2009, there's been a massive social and activist movement around public banking. Uh, and again, I'm not going to say that we have like hundreds of public banks now because we don't, but we do have dozens and dozens of public banking campaigns. You know, they've passed legislation at the state level in California, which is going to allow for up to 10 public banks in California. There's legislation in New Jersey, in New York, you know, different places like, you know, pretty much it's, it's very interesting. I go to Europe. I talk to people in Europe who were working in the public banking movement and they say, how, how is there so much activist energy around public banks? Why are people so interested in the United States and public banks? And it's, it's, it's very interesting. It's because of the financial crisis. It's because of, of how, you know, sort of Wall Street's been oriented and the speculative and financialized economy um, has been growing at, at such a rate vis-a-vis -vis the, vis -vis the, the, the real productive economy. 
Um, you know, and, and other things around public ownership as well. You know, I think we mentioned in the paper that uh, municipal broadband um, has been a massive area of expansion in the United States in, in just the past 10 years. I mean, there's something like 500 or so communities now who've set up their own public or community owned broadband internet networks. Um, because, you know, the big players, the AT&Ts, the, you know, Comcasts, they, you know, they don't provide equitable access to internet. And, you know, that's an absolutely critical thing in a modern digital economy is access to, to the internet. And we, that, you know, COVID-19 has shown that and the disparities, the racial and economic disparities that have cropped up because of this inequitable access to the internet. And so communities are taking that into their own hands and developing their own, own network. So in, in all of these areas, you know, even, you know, last thing I'll just say anchor institutions, for instance, you know, anchor institution framework is these large nonprofit or public institutions that are big economic players in the local economy. You know, that framework has existed for a while, but starting again in the, you know, the 2000s, you know, later in the 2000s, uh, there was much more of a conscious effort to develop an, a sort of an anchor mission approach really talking about how to get these institutions to consciously direct their assets, their procurement, their investment, their hiring to the benefit of local communities and to democratic enterprises and so on and so forth. That's only been happening for about 10 years. And we have, for instance, in our organization, a healthcare anchor network, which adopts all of these principles, which is bought into this framework, which is 40 of the largest health systems in the United States, you know, things like Kaiser. And I mean, these are institutions that if you put them together, you know, have assets in the trillions and hundreds of thousands of employees. I mean, these are very, very large institutions that are all sort of gravitating around this framework of trying to redirect their assets to community benefit and community development. Maybe I have one more thing to ask or suggest because, you know, the P2P Foundation, uh, we think a little about commons and I think that community wealth is in some way also about commons, right? Because it's shared resources that are managed by a community or a group of stakeholders. Do you agree with that? And do you see a convergence um, in these concepts or, or not? Absolutely. Yeah, I think the commons is an absolutely vital concept. We, we, we don't want everything owned uh, individually by isolated families there are our assets that need to be held in common and this is a lot of what uh, you know what public ownership is about uh, com community land trust for example which Thomas talked about the the land is owned in common right and it's owned in perpetuity in common and then people can own their houses uh, individually and, and and buy and sell them so that's a that's a brilliant concept. We're working now on a concept of local economy preservation funds. Can you can you begin to have some some control at the community level of who gets to own things? Um, land land banking. Yes. Yeah, so the so the common is an, is an absolutely uh, essential institution. Yeah, I I hundred percent agree as well. Um, you know, for for us, um, you know, there's there's not only is ownership critical for us, but also uh, control and governance is, is an absolutely critical part of community wealth building. And I think not only the sort of institutions of commoning or, or you know, the, the different ways things can be owned in common are important, but also this question of how to manage commons. Like we talk a lot about democratizing uh, institutions, you know, so simply shifting ownership is, is not the is not the be all to end all. Like you actually have to democratize ownership and you have to, you know, democratize control. And that, I think we can learn a lot from how commons are managed and a lot of the discussion Eleanor Ostrom and others about commoning and, and commons management, I think is, is absolutely critical. And also uh, we, we talked a little bit 
earlier about international issues and, and things of that nature. You know, I think a lot of the issues that we need to deal with on international scale really need to take a commons focus and a commons approach. You know, things like IP pools for vaccines and medicine so that, you know, we can have open access for people in you know, different parts of the world. You're not going to defeat a global pandemic by having vaccine nationalism, right? You're, you have to have uh, open commons approaches. Also things around tech and technology, um, really talking about patent pools and, and data commonses and, and other things I think are really cool parts of, of community wealth building. So do you have work on that in, in the Democracy Collaborative? Have you already written reports or policy papers that focus on this particular aspect? Um, and I think somewhere, maybe you mentioned also platform cooperatives and, and you know things of that nature. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll, go ahead, Thomas. No, please, please, Marjorie. I was going to say that in, in my second book, Owning Our Future, I devote a lot to um, uh, democratic ownership in the natural world, for example, with, with fisheries and lobsters and wind. And uh, so I, that was um, one place we've dealt with this. And Thomas, uh, you've done some publishing uh, about the commons at the Democracy Collaborative. Yeah, yeah, we, we ran a, a whole series of reports last year on um, trying to extend principles of democratic public ownership into uh, you know, the new frontiers of the modern digital economy. So we looked at uh, digital infrastructure, so things like broadband internet, uh, wireless uh, spectrum, uh, cloud computing. We also looked at uh, IP and R&D. Um, and we looked at platforms uh, and data uh, as well. And, okay. you know, for me, you know, patterns of ownership and control are at the heart of every political economic system. And they're really key to determining how power and agency and wealth is distributed in our societies. And, and this was acutely understood by the architects of the, the neoliberal project, which prioritized a massive transition of, of global wealth and ownership from public to to private hands, and and as such, you know the shifts, these shifts in ownership and control are at the heart of our community wealth building approach. And it's my opinion, and I think you know our collective shared opinion that for any system to be truly transformative, ownership and control of economic assets of institutions must be significantly democratized and and decentralized into these commons and public approaches, which which I mentioned and. You know, the digital technologies now, you know, now that we're, we're sort of on, on this subject, you know, digital technologies and services, you know, for me, they really have the potential, right? Like they have a lot of potential to usher in a, an era of shared prosperity and economic democracy. But currently, all that they're really doing is amplifying and reinforcing and extending existing inequalities of power and, and reward. And, you know, the Internet infrastructure that we all rely on to like live and work and play, it's increasingly controlled and manipulated by what are essentially a few large for-profit corporations and, you know, social media platforms as well. I mean, we've seen just in, in recent years, obviously, you know, how how much those like, these can be sort of engines of distrust and disinformation and division. But, you know, at their heart, all of these things are, are ways to bring people together, right? To bring communities together into dialogue. So it doesn't have to necessarily be uh, be the way that it is. And, and, you know, I go back a lot in my mind to the to the sharing economy, right? So when the sharing economy framework was first promulgated, you know, it really promised us a future of, of much more equitable consumption and provision. And 
And what's happened, you know, is, I mean, maybe somewhat predictably given, you know, how capitalism works, but it's turned into a, a dystopia of precarious work and wealth extraction with these Silicon Valley corporations that are, they're backed by bottomless pits of VC capital, you know, really running roughshod over local economies, over governments, over labor law, and so on. And so, you know, for us, community wealth building really has to include this focus on the digital economy. It can't be simply the, the traditional parts of the economy from the 20th century. We've got to always be looking forward to the to the, you know the next economy. And, and this really this includes scaling um, community controlled and common spaced alternatives in digital area, digital infrastructure uh, sorry in the digital economy in various ways. And I mentioned already I think things like municipal and community owned broadband networks, um, but also you know commons approaches to IP and R and D and things like uh, you know, cooperatives or you know, you know, platform cooperatives, democratically governed data trusts and so on. And, and we also, in one of the reports in our last report, we, um, we had this thing where we actually called it digital community wealth building. And so what we said is that in general, communities and cities and regions should really be at the vanguard of determining this new digital future and this genuine sharing economy. And so local community wealth building strategies really need to include and center new approaches to how data is generated and used and governed, how digital platforms and digital infrastructure are developed and owned, and with all with the overarching goal of sort of seeking to retain and grow value uh, in place. Thank you. I think Rock has uh, another question now. Uh, sure, thank you. Uh, yeah, next to well, community wealth building commons, the sharing economy, I think uh, one of the very salient concepts or models uh, has been a universal basic income, universal basic services, even uh, in the UK, I believe, as uh, being developed or promoted as a kind of model. And especially with COVID and everything, it does seem like uh, there's a reinvigoration or, or say a boost uh, to these uh, kinds of topics and maybe a window of opportunity to rethink welfare systems, local, national, maybe in, in, even international scales when we talk about distributive justice and so on. Um, and also the question of scaling, right? Uh, such systems and ownership of such systems. I suppose we could imagine a kind of positive futures with, with which uh, as Marjorie said is by no means uh, guaranteed, but uh, a kind of future where, uh, yeah, co-owned, co-managed public services reign supreme over, say, corporations in terms of, uh, 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 yeah, meeting life's basic necessities. Uh, so maybe uh, I would pick your both of your brains, or if if one of you um, has any more ideas about uh, how to place, yeah, basic income versus or and or uh, basic services debates within this kind of uh, context. Yeah, this is, this is an important concept and I would really separate out universal basic income from from universal services and about UBI. I, I think you're right that this this uh, this is a, likely a transitional mechanism that's needed. And I think that if we want to articulate the principle, it's, it's a right to life. Um, that's probably not a good way to say it, <laughs> but a right to um, to to stay alive and to have your basic needs met comes before the right to maximize profits. And so that is a necessary transition. What, what I would be concerned about with putting uh, too much weight on UBI is that it really is an end of the pipe solution. It, it, I think unconsciously it, it could say, 
leave the system in place, but just make sure that we don't starve. Um, and that's um, probably uh, the worst case picture of what of what could lie ahead. Um, and so I, I would make a uh, I think we, I would liken it to climate change. You need a multiple series of approaches. You need you need to adapt to climate change, which we now know is is going to be inevitable to to a large extent. And you need to um, you know get people rescued if they're on rooftops, and you need to rebuild so that we can live in this world. But you also need to go upstream. You don't just want these end of the pipe solutions. You want to go upstream and do um, mitigation too. You want to block climate change to the extent that we can. And I would say UBI, I would position that as, as the end of the end of the pipeline solution, which you have to do. You can't neglect it. That's, the, that's our immediate world, but you also need to go upstream and rework the institutions that have led us to this wealth inequality. And that's that's the broader work, because if we don't do that broader work, it's going to get worse and worse and worse. And we're going to be, you know, you know, surviving on scraps of, of UBI and, and have lost all of our power. So it's not the ultimate solution, but it could be a transitional solution. And universal services, I, I think, are a different matter. And this is a lot of work uh, that uh, Thomas is doing and our colleague Dana Brown is doing. For example, um, pharmaceuticals. I mean, we, we shouldn't, vaccines, medicines, are those for the people or are those for profit? That's an area where I think the moral imperative is you should not uh, become bankrupt because you need um, medicines or you need to be hospitalized. I mean, that's uh, it, it's a human right to have access to medicine and to health care. And so I think universal services should become a permanent part of a democratic economy. Thomas, you, you, you probably have some things you want to add. Yeah, thanks, Marjorie. Um, you know, for me, ultimately, I believe that if if a next system or a future system is going to be truly liberating and community sustaining, we're going to need to really fundamentally rethink and shrink the role the economy plays in our lives and, and our interactions. And I, I think this will need a mix of basic income and basic services approaches. You know, so on the one hand, I think if the fruits of technological progress and productivity were distributed more equitably, we could radically reduce working hours and increase leisure time. And this redistribution could likely take the form of regular cash dividends uh, to all residents from wholly owned, publicly owned or commons-based enterprises that have democratic governments in control, as well as a new set of community and environmental sustaining values. I think there are two major things to avoid or, or try to worry about with, with UBI. And the first is we don't want, I think as Marjorie was alluding to, we don't want a shareholder capitalism or a shareholder socialism model by which worker and community ownership stakes and otherwise conventional capitalist corporations just produce dividends. Like for instance, the Alaska Permanent Fund, which is you know, you know, a UBI model, is where community dividends are linked to the continued extraction of fossil fuels and minerals, right? So you're, you're basically, you know, embedding the community into this extractive model, which I don't really think that we end up wanting to do. And then the second is that, for me at least, I really don't think you want a basic income replacing social welfare programs. And traditionally, a basic income has been supported by figures on all sides of the political economic spectrum, you know, everyone from Milton Friedman to Martin Luther King. And the conservative sort of interpretation of, of UBI, which is increasingly being adopted by the libertarian right and the sort of Silicon Valley 
types today is that you know you want to use UBI to sort of eviscerate and replace Social Security programs, Medicare, you know, SNAP, and, and so on and so forth. And and you know, I re absolutely really don't think that's where you want to go. I mean, you I think you maybe want UBI to supplement, and and that's where I think you get to the other side of the coin. And what we actually need is maybe in addition to some sort of basic income, is a massive expansion of social services and, and protections. And, and for decades, you know, the belief was that, you know, a flourishing and prosperous society that works for all and not just for a privileged few requires that foundation of universally accessible goods and services. And this was really gaining traction around the world. And, you know, you know things like, you know, education and healthcare, although, you know, we don't have universal healthcare in the US, we, you know, we do in the UK and, and other places, you know, as well as other things like infrastructure and, and facilities that were publicly owned and accessible to all people. But as I said earlier, I mean, in recent decades, these gains, uh, you know, these concepts have really been under attack. And, you know, the neoliberal experiment that began in the, in the 70s holds universalism and holds public enterprises and services in contempt. Uh, it envisions a world in which the market is really embedded in every aspect of people's lives and everything is a commodity that you know needs to be bought and sold. And as part of this experiment, you've seen the, these massive waves of privatization, these public services that have been dismantled and, and sold off to the private sector. And, and other services have seen steep rises in, in user fees and means testing for access. And, and I think the results have been very predictable and, and very devastating to communities around the world. And so what I think we need to do is reverse these trends and really expand publicly owned and controlled services that are decommodified. In other words, that they are universally accessible and they're free at the point of use. And this includes traditional things like, you know, water, electricity, healthcare, transportation, education, and so on. But as I was mentioning earlier, I think it also involves new aspects of the economy, new places like things like broadband. So free broadband, uh, universal access to broadband is something that I think is in particularly important in the modern economy. Thanks for those uh, reading comprehend. Uh, yeah, M Michelle, yeah, maybe just a little question, uh, just a kind of curiosity. So this very strong movement, uh, model monetary theory, and you know they have also a proposal of the job guarantee, which is a bit related to this discussion of UBI basic services. Um, is that something you buy into, or or not? Uh, because that seems to be like. A big thing on the left today, which is you know this this idea of you know public spending that 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 is not limited in the way we thought it would be. And so, how how do you see this? Is this a way to finance community wealth, or is that not part of your your, your proposals or, or thinking? No, it absolutely it absolutely is. Uh, the, the stimulus bill right now includes um, a, another bill, which is called the um, um, State Small Business Financing Initiative. And uh, we're, we're right now starting to work with some state and city development finance agencies to tap some of this money, it's probably gonna be $10 billion coming down uh, very soon. And to use that to begin to help keep um, black owned businesses alive for example, create some local economy preservation funds. So that's an example of how, and this is federal reserve money that doesn't need to be paid back. So it, this is part of the modern monetary theory of, you know, you can just um, invent new money and use it to, to, to build community wealth. So we, we absolutely believe that's a, a vital mechanism. 
Yeah, yeah, I would just add that if you look at the United States uh, in particular, state and local governments by and large have to quote unquote balance their budgets. Uh, you know, so what we're looking at right now with the COVID crisis is essentially the possibility of a hardcore wave of austerity, of selling off public services, of privatization, you know, of, of just closures of, of, of you know, schools and healthcare facilities. I mean, uh, unless the federal government, the federal government is not constrained uh, by those things. The, the federal government can and should intervene uh, and to support state and local government budgets and also to deliver things like a Green New Deal uh, and, and, you know, the infrastructure that we all need in our society. Um, I 100% agree, uh, you know, with Marjorie and, and with you know, MMT scholars. There's no limits. There's no inherent limits, um, you know, on what the federal government can can do. It's, it's about design. Uh, it's about how you design these programs um, and how you distribute uh, the resources that the federal government has at its uh, fingertips, at its capability. Um, I guess the last thing I would just say on uh, on the job guarantee is just as, as UBI has a, a long tradition has been supported by people, you know, in the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King and so forth. So has the job guarantee as well. Um, it's been a longstanding demand of, of, you know, the civil rights movement going back, you know, decades. Um, and the job guarantee I think is, is absolutely critical. It's very important. I mean, if done correctly, a job guarantee can essentially eliminate the sort of reserve army of labor that uh, that allows capitalists and capitalism to to squeeze and exploit labor. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, like with all things, it's about design and how it gets implemented. Um, you know, there are things I think we want to avoid with a job guarantee. We don't want to like lock people into uh, into, you know, terrible wage job, low wage jobs, doing menial services, lock in existing racial and economic disparities in the types of jobs people have access to. But having a job guarantee of high paid, high quality jobs, I think is, is a very critical way of moving, you know, you know, decommodifying and moving in, in that direction. Thank you. Rock, I, I think it's time to conclude the conversation. Sure. Uh, so, yeah, we can get down to the final question, uh, which is something we like to ask uh, all our guests, uh, which is uh, kind of, yeah, give a space to plug in any, like, uh, besides Democracy Collaborative, uh, like other initiatives, networks, advocacy groups, and so on, that uh, our viewers and listeners could look up, uh, read up on, and perhaps engage to, yeah, join the fight. Yeah, so just just very briefly, um, you know, in the United States, uh, we have there's you know there's a lot of activity and energy um, you know around a lot of these issues. Um, you know, there's a new economy coalition uh, which people can go find them on the web, um, which has you know a lot of different organizations from all across the country and working in different areas, community land trusts, cooperatives. All, you know, all part of this. Um, we're a member, Democracy Collaborative is a member of the New Economy Coalition, as are lots of other organizations. Um, in, uh, in California, I'll just put a plug in for the California Public Banking Alliance, which is a very powerful grassroots movement um, in California that has uh, brought together a really powerful coalition of labor, community groups, environmental groups, social justice groups, political groups um, there to, to further the fight for public banking. In the United Kingdom, uh, our good friends who work a lot with Preston and other places is CLESS, the Center for Local Economic Strategies. Uh, so I would definitely encourage people to look them up. 
Um, also in Europe, the Transnational Institute, which is a sort of a, a long lost cousin of our organization, uh, which works a lot on these issues, especially around uh, remunicipalization, deprivatization, and, and you know, energy democracy and things of that nature. Also how they have networks throughout the global south, um, you know, to South America, to Africa, uh, to Asia, and so on. So I would uh, advise people to check them out as well. Thank you. Excellent. Thanks so much for that overview. I think that will be very helpful. Uh, with that, uh, I think, yeah, uh, we can conclude this session for now. Uh, hope to stay in touch. And of course, uh, welcome uh, to all the uh, listeners and viewers to check out the paper as well. Uh, we'll also make sure to yeah, um, post all the links to the initiatives and other research uh, mentioned during this talk. Uh, both down below the video as well as next to the podcast episode and on the spiders platform so thanks this so is much so great. yeah thanks for having us this has been a lot of fun mm. yeah thank you marjorie thank you thomas it was a great conversation thank you so much <laughs>